Living downright buddy, buddy, buddy Wish I missed the past Buddy, buddy, but there's still Buddy cast No, don't be naughty Go meet everybody Here on Buddy Cast Okay, buddies, rise and shine, and don't forget your booties, because it's cold outside. I have a special guest here on this episode of BuddyCast. Joining me is my new buddy, Stephen Tobolowski, also known as Ned Ryerson. Bing! <laughs> <laughs> Let's start out. Can you do the intro for us? What? What? Oh, oh, Nick. Nick. Hey, now don't say you don't remember me because I sure as heck fire remember you. It's me, Ned Ryerson. Needle nose, Ned, Ned the head. Come on, Nick Case Western High. Bing. You know, uh, Ned, Ned oh, Ryerson, you know, whistling belly button. Never try the whistling belly button trick. It, I, as someone who, after the entire film, said someone do the whistling belly button trick, it's really not worth the effort. You have, mm-hmm. even though it does help if you have glasses, that you can put your glasses above your navel, so it does look more like a face. Uh, don't do it. And <laughs> I, that's me being a buddy to everybody who's listening to the buddy cast. Don't try yeah. the whistling belly button trick. <laughs> so let's start out by asking: How did you get into acting in the first place? Oh gosh, ah, oh, boy, that's a tricky question because I guess I always wanted to be an actor from when I was a little little kid. But for misguided reasons, you, you, you know, I had no idea what acting was. I, I thought at the time I loved monster movies and I thought monsters were real. So I thought if you were an actor, you got to hang out with the Wolfman, or Frankenstein or Godzilla. And, and I, what better group of friends could you have? Creature of the Black Lagoon, you know, go over to his pad and, you know, swim in the water some. I thought uh, it would be special. And then I got into college. Boy, I I did plays all during junior high, high school. Then in college, I went to SMU as a drama major. And at that time was the first time I really began reading serious literature. And I read Ibsen and Chekhov and Shaw and Eugene O'Neill, Tennessee Williams. And I'm going like, this stuff is noble. And I began to think being an actor was a noble calling. And then I come out to Hollywood in 76, and I realize that I'm lucky if I get an audition for Butt Crack Plumber. And then you see acting is a completely different type of thing, like so many things are different when you do it professionally as when you do it as a hobby. Which is why when buddies come up to me and say, oh, they want to be actors, I said, well, you're probably working from the template of being an actor in without any pressure, with not a lot at stake, and usually for free. And then you go like, well, it's a fun, daring way to express yourself. But with a lot on the line and with no time and with constant rewrites, to be an actor is to be a, a juggler of knives. And, and hatchets like they used to do on the old Ed Sullivan show. So it, it's a dangerous pursuit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of your biggest rules that a bunch of people would know you from today is Groundhog Day, right. as we mentioned in the beginning. I, I hear you have an interesting story of how you landed that role. Oh, well, it's, it's, it was a strange story. Um, I went to read uh, for Harold Ramis, 
mm-hmm. uh, Groundhog Day. I, I was working on the movie um, Calendar Girl, and I was playing uh, a mafioso type guy with my brother, who was a mafioso top guy, tough guy, uh, played by Kurt Fuller. Now he played someone who was in those days we called deaf mute, hearing impaired. And so for the role, I had to learn sign language, ASL, sign language of the deaf. And Kurt had to learn it too. And so throughout the whole movie, I'm translating things for him. So I went and I got an audition uh, with Harold Ramis to be Ned Ryerson. And uh, I remember the first, first of all, it was shocking that I read with Harold Ramis. I mean, you never read with the director, you read for the director, but you don't have the act. And later I asked Harold, I go, why did you do that? And he said, well, because I'm an actor too. I've done, and I thought actors should be able to work with someone who's a professional actor. I go, yes, but you're our boss. You're the guy who hires and fires us. It really adds to the stress to audition with your director, uh, which he thought was amusing, which I still didn't. I mean, he was very good, thank goodness, in the role. And I was very broad in the part I remember before I auditioned. I said, I'm going to be kind of big as Ned. Uh, in fact, it would probably play in the Roman Coliseum. But if, you know, I could always tone it down. And so I was all over him doing the first scene of Ned. I was undoing his belt, unzipping his pants. I went down, I started shining his shoes, talking about insurance. Crazy. So I drive back to Paris, Paris, California, which is where we were shooting Calendar Girl. And for some reason, they didn't have room for all the actors out of town. So the only time in my career, they bunked me with Kurt Fuller. We were in the same room. We each had our little queen bed. And so that night, we were like at summer camp you know, is dark. And we were talking about the day shoot. And then we started actor talk and Kurt said, so you got anything coming up? And I knew already from experience that the only thing another actor wants to hear is that actually you're getting out of the business and going to open up a delicatessen. No other actor wants to hear, well, yes, actually I'm doing this, 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 and this. It makes them feel like they're dying. So anyway, I said, well, Kurt, you know, it's the same old, same old, just knocking on doors and just trying. And I said, how about you? And he goes, yeah, well, actually I got a lot happening. I'm going to be in the new Bill Murray movie, Groundhog Day. Uh, uh, I'm a friend of Bill's and uh, Harold, I know Harold Ramis, and I'm playing this crazy insurance guy, Ned Ryerson. And we've already started rehearsing. And as soon as this is over, I'm going to start that. Now I'm lying in my bed dying. I'm looking at the ceiling going like something is terribly wrong with this picture. One of us, either Kurt or myself, is being royally screwed. Can you say that on BuddyCast? I mean, something is going on and we are not privy to all the information. So I don't say anything that I had just auditioned for the part. And I get a call back uh, a couple days later. We're still in Paris, California, which is about a two-hour drive or something from L.A. So I drive the two hours to L.A. I read again with Harold uh, Ramis, drive back. And on the way back, 
back then we had cell phones. This is the current cell phone, right? Let me get it. Mm-hmm. This is current. Yeah. Back then we had the cell phones that were like walkie talkies in the military, you know, like this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm driving back and my cell phone rings. I pull it, <laughs> I crank up the box. Yes, it's my agent saying, you have the role of Ned Ryerson. Wow. And they said, as soon as you finish this movie, they're going to fly you up to Chicago and get you to Woodstock and, and you start right off as soon as this ends. Well, they apparently also told Kurt. So I'm driving back to Paris, California, and Kurt is waiting for me. And he is, understandably, I had a great acting teacher. Here's here's a uh, sidetrack. I had a great acting teacher, Ed K. Martin, that said anger is a secondary emotion. It covers up hurt. And as an actor, if you have a scene of anger, you have to take the time and the energy to understand what is the hurt that is generating that anger. Kurt was enormously hurt, right, rightfully furious. Uh, again, I had no control over the situation. I don't know what happened. And I don't know why that switcheroo happened. I know that as soon as we finished, I went, and that goes into a whole other series of stories of me shooting Groundhog Day, but we finished the movie. And the movie is premiering. We had the premiere in. Westwood. And there is Kurt Fuller standing in front of the theater. And I'm going into the theater with Andy. She wanted me to go with her to the theater to keep the men away from her because I am apparently a, a male anti-magnet. When, whenever I am with a woman, men steer clear. And, and so we walked into the theater, Andy and I walked into the theater and Kurt came up and said, I'm going to watch the movie with you. So I watched the movie with Kurt. And at the end of the movie, he said, well, you took my part from me, but at least you did a good job with it. Congratulations. And he hugged me and went off. And I thought, Now, there is the flip side of the hurt-anger curve, and that is the courage-graciousness curve. I don't know if I would have the courage of Kurt, nor the graciousness. I, I imagine in my mind, I probably would have hoped that the entire project, uh, caught fire, that Woodstock, Illinois caught fire and the movie never got made. You know, that's just the little Stephen inside of me. But mm-hmm. Kurt, Kurt was great. And we've since then acted together in several projects. And he, you know, he's, he's a great, great, great actor. He's terrific. So it had nothing to do with that. I remember years later, I was at a charity event with Harold Ramis. And I tried to get to the bottom of it in a delicate way without bring. And I said, how did I end up getting the part of Ned Ryerson? And Harold looked at me and said, well, Stephen, I knew you were Ned Ryerson when you walked into the room. And when you first opened your mouth to audition, the instant you left after that first audition, I called Bill Murray up on the phone and I said, 
we found Ned Ryerson. This guy is the most obnoxious person I've ever met. Oh, my goodness. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, flattery will get my underwear. You know, it, it's it's like in in acting, it's just ne- the blows just never stop coming. And and even even in great situations, mm-hmm. even in great situations, there's always something that will humiliate. So um uh but but it was it was a profound experience. Uh it was scary uh working with so little rehearsal with Bill Murray. It was wonderful working with Harold Ramis. I learned so much about comedy and comic direction of film from Harold Ramis. You know, I'd sit beside him all day and he'd say, well, look, I'm going to shoot this. I'm going to do this. I do this. Modern people, you know, people today, they, they shoot comedy all wrong. And, you know, basically what Harold Ramis said, comedy has to live in the two shot. Now, if you watch Groundhog Day, Mm-hmm. You will see that basically Bill and I are usually in the same frame at the same time. And Harold Ramis said, the reason is this, for comedy to work, you have to have one character that represents the world and one character that represents the aberration to the world. And then the humor is in watching the world respond to the aberration of the world and how big the aberration is. In this scene, Stephen, Bill is the world. And you are the aberration to the world. And that we're today, he says, everybody loves to shoot close up, close up, close up, close up, close up, single, 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 single. He says, that's wrong. That's not the way you shoot comedy. And and if you take a look at the punch, when Bill throws the punch and punches me, you know, it's not a series of what makes it work is that we're both, it's not close up, close up, close up. It's like me walking, Bill in frame, Bill turning, Bill hitting me, me flying to the ground. All in one shot, no edit. And as Groundhog Day progresses and we move from the scenes, which I say are the clearly comical scenes in the first three quarters of the movie to the more serious scenes where Bill is in despair near the end, near the end, when he's alone in the hotel room with Andy is when we start going into close-ups. That's when we go to single, 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 because that is the introspective mirror, the single shot as opposed to the comedic mirror, which is the two shot. Mm-hmm. Now I got to ask from the movie, you must've said the intro lines about at least a dozen times. Did that ever become like an earworm to you or something like that? Or did that ever become something that like, you just found yourself, like your wife would like nudge you in your sleep or something. And you're, like, <laughs> you're, saying the, you're saying the lines again. No, no, no. But um, it's interesting back, back, uh, you, you know, I think, I've told this story before, and some people may know this, but, you know, Harold Ramis had not figured out what the day of the movie was going to be, right? Because the day of Groundhog Day is repeated, so weather-wise, it had to be exactly the same. So there were originally around nine scenes of Bill meeting me in the street, and I think it got cut down to about four of varying lengths. The first one is the longest. Then they get shorter. Then Bill's just running through. You know, I think there ends up being like four of the scenes, one of them ending up with watch out for that first step. It's a doozy, right? We have several scenes, but Harold wanted us to shoot it in every weather condition 
So after the movie, he could just, after we finished shooting the movie, he could decide what the meteorological day was. And so Bill and I not only shot that scene nine different ways, as in the script, but we shot it in every weather condition. And we were shooting, as I said, a little over an hour and a half outside Chicago. So the weather changed a great deal. So Bill and I shot those scenes in snow, in sleet, in rain, in sun, in gloom. And so we shot them a lot. We shot them a lot. And if you realize, if your shooting schedule is dependent upon the weather, then what does that make it for the actors? That means Bill and I have no schedule. It means if they're shooting some scene in in the square for Groundhog Day and it begins to rain and you can't shoot that anymore, Stephen, Bill, get on the street and shoot the first scene in the rain. Or snow. Stephen and Bill, shoot the first scene in the snow. We had no schedule, which I think was like guerrilla filmmaking. It's like the best kind of filmmaking where nothing is set, everything's up in the air, and it's a war. And whenever the weather changes, Bill and I were down on that street doing one of the nine scenes. And of course, my trivia question is, in in the end, Harold Ramis chose the gloomy day to be the day that is repeated. Uh, And then when snow falls near the end is when time starts again. But there is one scene in the movie in which he could not do that. And it is the only scene in the movie that has sunshine. And next time you watch the movie, trivia question, what is the one scene in Groundhog Day that is done in sunshine? And the reason why it was done in sunshine was that we were working with a very difficult performer. Hmm. And we had to shoot it then. Was it the scene that they stole the groundhog? Right. Yes. The groundhog is one of the meanest creatures on earth. In fact, it did by Bill, which is why we have the great line, in, which was not in the script, but don't drive angry. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> you, know, you know, Bill is so brilliant about being in the moment. Every, everybody always says, you know, your impression of Bill Murray as a comedian. Let's just put comedian aside. I found where I thought he was the one of the most startling actors I've ever worked with in my life. Every take, every time he was in the moment, nothing was ever repeated. I, I mean, the lines were the same. They had to be the same because it's a repeated day. But Bill is so in the moment all the time, always glommed onto your eyes. Anything can happen. And and then you just dance. Then you just play. Uh, a, a brilliant actor. Mm-hmm. Gotta ask, what was it like working with people like Bill Murray, Harold, you know, Harold Remus, all of them? Like you, you talked about them briefly before, but just what was it truly like? What was it truly? And your- well, it was terrifying. Mm-hmm. At, at the first level, it was terrifying. And then Bill and I, we shot the first day of Groundhog Day. 6.30 call in the morning in the town square, and we started doing the street scene. And it was clearly a success. And we had about 500 people from the town watching. So after we did that big scene, and it was a success, I relaxed. And I remember I sat in the the little 
actor chair, you know, next to Harold Ramis while they were setting up another shot. And he was going, that went pretty well. And I go, Harold, do you think I was too broad? <laughs> do you think I was too big? And Harold Ramis smiled and he said, Stephen, Bill Murray is the stew. You are the spice in the stew. In an acting scene, when you're the stew, you have to be Bill Murray. You have to play it straight. When you're the spice in the stew, buddy, you could do whatever you want. So uh, that was magnificent. And and then I'd always sit next to Harold Ramis and, and to John Bailey, the cinematographer, and just get tips on what they were doing and how they were doing it. And the movie looks, you, you don't see any hand of a director when you see Groundhog Day. It's effortless. That's how good Harold Ramis is. As wow. a director, just there's no thumbprint on there saying like, I had, I need to show you that this was directed in a way. And, you know, he was too good for that. A brilliant, brilliant director. And and it, so it was scary at first. But one thing I found is when you work with the best, which is Bill, which is Harold Ramis, which is Andy, which, which is uh, Chris, Chris Elliott, you, you know, when you work with the best people in the business, and I've worked with Alan Parker on Mississippi Burning, with Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe. When when you work with uh, Ridley Scott, Thelma and Louise, uh, when you work with the best people like this, that is when you pretty much always have the most fun with the least problems. And you go, you would think it's the opposite. You would think someone as demanding as Alan Parker would, uh, and and with with a reputation of being a terror as Alan Parker, you know, would, would just scare you to death, uh, working on Mississippi burning with him, but then you're with him and he, and it's like the ease of breathing. You, you end up having troubles with directors who are starting out and who may be more ambitious than they have ability and and you know you're they're trying to please a lot of different masters a lot of people are looking over their shoulders so everybody's rethinking and you know double clutching here there and everywhere and then and then it could be a tense set and and you can always feel oh failures around the corner but when you work with these great people you always feel like you're succeeding and you always feel that it's as easy as breathing Mm-hmm. That kind of reminds me of a question a buddy asked me when I told him you were coming on the show. As actors, you know, you always get to that one moment of like where you question yourself or like you have that like self doubt. You know what I mean? What like was every day? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what was that for you? And like, what's been your motivation to bounce back in that moment? Like, whenever you get that moment, like whenever you question, like, like you said, whenever you question in the beginning when you were talking about. The only thing another actor wants another actor to say is like, I'm leaving the business. Whenever you get that feeling, what's your motivation to bounce back and say, nope, I'm staying here and I'm doing my job? Well, that what you just said at the end is the key is what what is your obligation to? If you have an obligation to your ambition, it's going to be a long road with bare feet. If your obligation 
is to that little character that's on the page. When you read the script, what, what I tried to tell people, you know, how do you not be nervous in an audition? And I'll tell you a story about this in a second. How do you not be nervous in an audition? I said, well, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to make the people that are watching you think you're good? Or are you trying to honor that little character that was written on the page? Now, you may not get the part in the audition, but the one chance you have of making that little character breathe with your breath and with your mind and your heart and your soul is right now at this audition. It's an honor to give life to this character. And if your energy goes into the character and not into whether you get the part or not, uh, strange things happen. Um, uh, strange. Well, this is what it leads you to. Uh, Michael Mann in, in a movie that became The Insider. So one of the great directors ever, right? Michael Mann, unbelievable director, unbelievable so innovative and so so anyway but also very secretive he he didn't want anyone to see the script didn't want anyone to see the script so i get sent this was back in the days we had a machine called a fax machine i don't know if those still exist anymore but we had a fax machine and my agent sent me a fax of the part he wanted me to read in this movie that was currently untitled. So the movie had no name. We knew Michael Mann was directing it, wrote it, didn't know anything about it. It was Hotel Clerk. That's the awesomeness part, Hotel Clerk, right? So the part has no name. I am always suspicious of parts and scripts that have no names. So Hotel Clerk, and it's like a page and a half obviously a tiny part, whatever, doesn't matter, Michael Mann movie. And I'm reading it, and I have no idea who I'm talking to, what hotel, if it's a Holiday Inn or if it's a Waldorf Astoria. I have no idea if it's a four, what level of hotel clerk am I? What experience do I have? Am I an actor who's just working as a hotel clerk in night to make money? Or is hotel clerk my profession? I know nothing because I haven't seen the script. So I go in and I wait for two hours for my audition with Michael Mann. And I'm going back and forth like, what are you going to do? Are you going to go in and just do, what are you going to do? And I go, this is my one chance to make this little person come to life. So I walk in, sit down, the reader's with me, and Michael Mann says, well, shall we give this a try? And I said, no. He goes, no. I go, no. Because aren't you, you've been waiting to audition. I go, yes, sir. I've been waiting to audition. I would like to audition, but I cannot audition with this. And he says, you can't audition with this. No, sir. Why? Because I don't know anything about the movie. I don't know who I am, what I am, what I want. Uh, I need to read the entire script. He said, well, you only have a small part. I said, it doesn't matter. I need to know what part I have in the story, 
what the importance is my role is in the script. I said, you take this movie seriously. That's why you wrote it and are directing it. It matters to you. This matters to me, even if it's hotel clerk. And he kind of looked at me and kind of went, okay, I'll give you a script, but you have to sign a contract. I went into his little office. He had a non-disclosure contract. I decided that I could not tell a soul what was in this script. And I read the script that night, was willing to come in. I came in the next day after reading the script, and he said, what do you think? I said, I think this is a brilliant script. So who wrote it? And he goes, I did. I said, well, then I gave you a good answer. I said, that's a most perfect answer for an audition. And and I would love to do Hotel Clerk. And he looked at me and said, you know, we're going to do something different since you read the entire script. Turn to page so-and-so and so-and-so. I want you to read the head of CBS. Turn to page so-and-so and so-and-so. We'll read Hotel Clerk. Turn to page. And I read for four different parts for him because I read the script and he may have been trying to see if I had read the script, but I auditioned for four different parts and I got the part of, uh, Eric cluster, the head of CBS. And I had, you know, I was able to have a scene with Al Pacino and, and it was great. And it was a great experience. Again, it wasn't a huge part, but it was a great experience, but it was living proof of when you honor the script and the little part, and what you do, that is your motivation for moving forward. That is your motivation when you feel like you're crumbling. Beautiful. That's what everyone needs to hear today, especially during these times, you know, not just in acting, but in anything, just remembering your motivation and just remembering who you are in life and really making the best of it. Like just not taking just a little podcast and going, yeah, let's talk to some neighbors and next door or something, but reaching for the stars and going, this is who, this is what I want to make this. This is what I want this show to be. So, right. Mm-hmm. Right. So you've mentioned throughout this entire interview, people like Bill Murray, you just mentioned Al Pacino. Is there like an actor wish list that you still hope to this day that you can work with? Oh gosh, I've had, so many great, again, I found that great, great actors generally are the most fun to work with. I had enormous fun working with Meryl Streep in the movie adaptation for which I was cut out completely, but I had the greatest time acting with her and I thought she was fantastic and she was wonderful off, off screen. Al Pacino, the bestest time, the bestest time working with Al it was just hysterical. And, and when we, when we finished our scene, we shot all day and I saw that on Al's, when the camera was on Al, he did like at least five different versions of the scene, uh, in varying sizes. Cause we all know the big Al and we all know the, we all know the little Al and, and he did scenes of varying intensity huge and then very subtle and very small. And he was going to leave it to Michael to kind of choose which way he wanted the scene to go because he and Christopher Plummer were kind of the ones that were running the scene. And I was just kind of moderating. 
and we finished the scene and we were walking off the set and we were doing what all actors kind of do at the end of doing a scene. And that was like a postmortem of what we did. Oh, Steven, I thought that was very funny when you, when you, and I go, and now when you, when you did, and while we're talking, we're talking over the scene, Al like gets this phony beard that hooks around your ears and he's putting it on a phony beard. Then he gets this big tattered black hat and is putting it on. And then he gets this ratty overcoat, broken little glasses he's putting on. I go, Al, uh, time out. What are you doing? And he goes, Stephen, I can't go anywhere. Now we're shooting in New York City, right? I can't go anywhere. So I finished this scene and I'm going to walk from here through Central Park east to west where I have a driver meet me and then he's going to drive me out to my house. Al was involved at the time with five different lawsuits because when people see him on the street or in a restaurant or something, they figure he's an easy mark to try to start to get into a fight and sue him. Um, I heard the same thing about an old classmate of mine, Kathy Bates, after she won her, what, 15th or 16th Academy Award for Kathy Bobo Bates, as we knew her at SMU, was always the best actress ever. Uh, you know, and I, re I remember my girlfriend uh, at the time, uh, Beth, uh, Beth Henley, she wrote a play uh, when we were first in Los Angeles called Crimes of the Heart which ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize. And it was being done at the Actors Theater of Louisville. And she said, well, there was an SMU actress there, Kathy Bates, playing. I said, you have Kathy Bates playing one of the parts in your play? Well, bingo, <laughs> you know, you, you are, you, you're not going to have any problem. But Kathy Bates, I think the last, Kathy and I ended up doing like three movies together. Often, uh, we were doing Little Black Book, and I asked her, you know, always, Kathy, how are you doing? And she says, I'm in the lawsuit era of my life. And I recalled Al Pacino, that at a certain point of fame, Kathy, you know, having several Academy Awards, Al being Al Pacino, people are going to do things to take advantage of you, to get you into a lawsuit uh, to where you'll just pay them nuisance fee, you know, pay him a few hundred thousand dollars just to walk away. Mm -hmm. That's why I always demand being paid the base rate. Just that's why I, I work for scale or even less than scale. In, in fact, on some movies, I would pay them. Uh, I want to keep my income as low as possible. Keep, keep those kind of things down. Beautiful. And you're 100% right. Just celebrities nowadays, it seems like they can't just go to a simple street corner and just have a have a drink or something without someone. Oh, no. like, I remember hearing a story from Paul McCartney once about how even like when he was, you know, he's still in his prime and everything, but when he was really like the Beatles prime, sure. he was outside. He couldn't leave his house. He had to leave his house with a small disguise. Like he had like this, he had like, the, like he said, the glasses, the beard, the hat, like a baseball cap, everything. And he was like kind of scurrying out. And he almost made it, like he almost made it to the car. And then someone goes, Paul, hey, Paul, how's it going? <laughs> he just goes, he just goes like, <laughs> so, but you're right. And thinking of that, for you personally, how many times have you gone in public and someone's approached you and go, can you do the Ned Ryerson? 
Or can you do it like... Oh, thank God for the pandemic. Uh, before we wore masks, at least three times a day. And and not only that, but, you know, the grocery store, at the pet store, wherever I'm at, bing! You know, they go, can, can you do, watch out for that first image, you know? If, and then they go, can you go bing for me? And I, uh, I go, okay, bing. And they go, has anyone ever asked you to do that? I go, yeah, like a couple times just today. Uh, but with the pandemic, thank goodness for this lethal infection that's going around the world. Because when I wear a mask and a hat, you know, all you see is this. And very few people recognize me and ask me to go bing. <laughs> It's a shallow grave. Bing is a shallow grave. But, you know, I'm just thankful that Ned is a character that gives people a lot of joy. And and still today it gives them joy. So that's nice for me. I'm happy about that. Mm-hmm. Another character that I'm very fond of you playing is actually the principal in the TV show, The Goldbergs. Yeah. Talk about that for a moment. How did that come to be? Uh, I just got offered. That's one of those parts I just got offered. And that show. There's two shows I've worked on. Uh, a couple of the Law and Orders. Uh, I did a couple SVUs, and I did Criminal Intent in New York, and the Goldbergs. And those those shows are like amazing. The ease with which the show happens. Brilliant designers, wonderful writers, great. Uh, everyone doesn't realize how important the assistant director is on the set. The ADs, the first ADs, the second ADs, they're the ones who are really connecting you to the show. So good on, on both of, of course I'm sticking all the law and orders in one big box because you know, it's always Dick Wolf and it's always the same group of people uh, doing costumes. Uh, Just an example. When I was doing law and order uh, SVU, so I did it twice. I did it like, I want to say something like eight years apart, like two shows, eight years apart. Uh, I walk onto the set. Uh, I come in from Kennedy Airport, arrive at the set about 930 at night. They have the costume people there. Oh, here are your clothes for you. And they all fit perfectly. Everything fits perfectly. And they had all of my measurements and everything from eight years before. They don't have to go through anything. And everything was perfect. It works. And the same thing with the Goldbergs. Of course, you know, the same costumers on the Goldbergs did Silicon Valley. And, you you know, that we're over at Sony a lot. And you keep running into the, and they're so good that everything is perfect. Now, I also did Schooled. Mm-hmm. which was the Goldberg spinoff. And yep. the strange thing is the Goldbergs takes place in the eighties. Mm-hmm. So I have these three suits I've worn for the last seven years on the Goldbergs as the principal. I basically wear three different outfits for the last seven years. Then when I did school, which takes place 10 years later, I have the same damn outfits. Like they can't even give me a nineties outfit. I'm still wearing this. I still have the same tie. I don't know anyone who has the same shirt and the same tie for 20 years, but 
not only do I have the same, oh, I see. Yeah, there we go. Not only do I have the same clothes as Principal Ball for the last, as I say, seven years, that sometimes when I've gone in to get dressed, what what I do is they they have sides. These these are pages about like that big with your lines on them, so you could stick them in your pocket and look at them on the set, and then stick them back in your pocket. So I will, like I'm supposed to do a Goldberg's, I think next week. Mm-hmm. I will have several weeks in between a Goldberg's, and I get my clothes back from the cleaners or whatever. So they say, and the sides from the old show are still in my pants pocket. So whatever cleaner they took them to, they didn't take out the old script. So I find scripts in my clothes that go back years. Uh, But it's great working. I use most of my scenes are with Wendy. So we have just the uh, hoot of a time. We just have a great time doing it. And we've even done several shows during this cursed pandemic. Uh, and that's been a real war. I mean, it's amazing to do comedy mm-hmm. in a pandemic. Like Wendy and I are doing a scene in the hallway of the school. That's ridiculous, ridiculously funny. And suddenly the ADs run on. Everyone has to evacuate the set. There's been a COVID break. Everybody must leave. So we all are running out. Now we're standing outside at Sony and says, everyone go home. We'll contact you all at home as to what happened. And you're like, and and we find out, oh, that someone had COVID that was on the set. So now they have to disinfect the entire set. We have Mm -hmm. to have two COVID tests in the morning, the 15 minute Abbott test, and then the 48 hour test. We have to have those two scenes. We have to wait for the 15 minute test results before we're allowed back onto the set. And then we have to go back and do a funny scene. Wendy and I have to go back and be funny. That's being a professional actor. That's that's yeah. that's one of the things people don't think of. You have to be terrorized. You have to get all these things shoved up your nose. Then you have to be funny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but the Goldbergs is spectacular. I love those people. I love the cast, and I've loved them for years. Yes. Have you ever met the actual principal ball? Yes, I have. In fact, uh, Adam Goldberg, as kind of a stunt joke, (laughs) brought the real principal ball and had me interview him. So we we do. And they had an interviewer, too. But it was the whole thing to -hmm. have me interview the real principal ball. And on the show, one of the plot points was that Beverly Goldberg set me up with my wife. Uh, Principal Ball up with his wife. So I so I asked the real Earl Ball, I said, uh, Mr. Ball, did you, in fact, were you set up by Beverly Goldberg? And he goes, not at all. That's complete fiction. And I go, okay, then the next step is when Beverly Goldberg came to school to talk to you as a principal, were you really that scared? And he said, it was the most terrifying days of my life. <laughs> And the actress who, you know, Wendy, she portrays her so perfectly. Like, she portrays that mother that you really, like, if you were a principal yourself, you would just look and go, oh, heck no. Like, you would just oh, see you in, no. in the hallway. You would just in the hallway and just slam the door in your office. Like, nope, not dealing with her today. Not today. Not today. Oh, it's just the delightful. Just, 
just tell her I'm I'm dealing with a kid right now or something, or just make some excuse. He's not dealing with a kid right now. He'll be back momentarily. Yeah, yeah. It, it it's it's so it's a great great cast, and to to work on that show, like when when we were doing one day at a time, which we were doing on the stage, just a few stages down at Sony. Again, there was an example of a cast like the Goldbergs cast. It was such a delight to be around. Everybody on the cast is just such a joy and puts a big smile on your face. Going to work really isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes you go and there's their problem people, but not on the Goldbergs, not at all. It's just a delight. Yes. We actually have a couple of questions from the audience. The first one is, how is shooting different oh. during the pandemic? I see, Trent. It is completely completely different. Not only is shooting different, but the writing is different. So let's take a normal show like the Goldbergs. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the Everybody is divided into categories. There's A plus, A, A minus, B. The people are divided into, into those categories. The actors, the primary actors are A plus. Now, the ones who are like recurring actors like me, are considered A, not A+. So Wendy would be A+, I would be A, because I'm not on every week. So the A-plus actors are, anyone who's on that set is tested every 48 hours. And the A-plus actors are basically quarantined together. And the people like me, we sit in a different area. Except on the Goldbergs, Wendy says, oh, come on in here, let's run lines. Uh when we're not on camera, we are in a trailer that has plexiglass boxes. And each actor sits in a plexiglass box with their mask. And they have their little bottle of water and everything. And nobody encounter, nobody touches anybody else. Then you run out. You take your mask off for the makeup people to put, put it. And they're in like a spacesuit <laughs> when they put it on. Now, Goldbergs, you have students and you have extras. They're like B, you know, so the the B group of people cannot be in the same place as the A group of people. So the B group of people have to leave completely. And, and then the A group of people, we shoot all of our scenes on stage. Then they bring the B group of people in and they shoot over our shoulders onto the audience for those shots. And then the A group of people leave and anything they need with the B group of people, they shoot. So they, they separate everything out. Now that didn't happen in the old days. They do as much social distancing as they can. We rehearse with like this. We'll, re- we'll rehearse the scene like this. And then we, when we're ready, getting close to shoot, we take the mask off and put the face shield on and rehearse with the camera with the face shield. And then we go off. And then when the camera rolls, everything comes off and we shoot. And wow. then everything goes back on. And, and so it's daunting. It's daunting. And the writing now is trying to incorporate the pandemic in that they have a lot of scenes that are virtual. I, I played a psychiatrist in a movie that we shot uh, that we shot during the pandemic 
where my patients are virtual. So I'm talking to them on a computer screen and I'm shooting on a computer screen. Now, a lot of what I've been doing in terms of work now in the pandemic is voiceover, cartoons and things like that, Loud House, things like that. They will either, in a very creepy way, Nickelodeon can come and take over your computer, like virtually, like will you push the button to let us control your computer? And and they will control all your sound settings. And then I record like this. And they're still at their Nickelodeon set in Burbank. And they're recording. And we do shows that way. Or uh, I've been doing some archers and puppy dog pals. And when I do those shows, I actually go to, a, I take my life into my hands and I go to a studio. And I am quite often the only person there or the only real person I see. I'm the only person in this studio. The sound engineers are in another part of the building watching me virtually, and they're just got their sound. And the producers, like for Archer, are in Atlanta, and they're watching everything on movie screens. When I work at Pixar, you know, alone, and then you have movie screens in front of you with the writers and the producers giving you notes over the, and you're just there with the microphone and you're alone and you leave alone. So it is completely different in this pandemic. It's a constant reminder that you can't be too careful. You can never be too careful. I told myself that all the time because I am I work for a news station, so I have to go in no matter what. But I've got a mother right now who doesn't have a spleen. So the moment that anything happens, the moment someone coughs near me or something, I'm walking in my boss's office and go, okay, that's just been person been tested has this been this yeah it's like you're, you're right you take your life in your own hands when you right. go to places you know another question we have from the audience real quick can we talk about dr jekyll and miss hyde uh that was a pretty hilarious film uh yeah i i had so much fun with sean and uh harvey fierstein that we were just laughing the whole time we were shooting that in Montreal, I believe. I, believe, I know it was Canada. I think it was Montreal. It was beautiful, beautiful place. Um, it was. It was a pretty standard comedy at the, uh, like a kind of role reversal sex comedy uh, of sorts. And Sean is just hot off of, uh, you know, the Ridley Scott. Uh, what was the one where she was the robot in the future hmm. uh, with Rutger Howard and Harrison Ford. I'm seeing it right in front of me raining all the time. Anyway, she was the beautiful robot. So she was, uh, she was delightful uh, on the show. We had a good time working, but basically we we're just laughing the whole time we were doing that, that, that show. I, I remember the one strange thing that is when I think I had a heart attack blade runner. That's right. Blade runner. Thank you so much. Uh, blade runner is that movie. Uh, that is when I think I had a heart attack. So I love baseball. So on one of the off days, I went to go see the Montreal expos and I was coming back uh, and it was raining in Montreal. So from the subway stop to my hotel was about eight blocks. 
kind of uphill. And I've been practicing, I've been running a lot at that time. So it was no big deal. So I'm running in the rain and suddenly I feel like a fist punching me in the chest, like boom. And it stopped me and I'm crossing the street. So I, so I stop running and then I start walking across the street and then I feel another, like a punch. Now I don't know if anyone's had a heart attack, but, but another punch and then I start walking on the sidewalk and I got the third and I went down to my knees and I realized I can't walk anymore. And I'd lay down in the rain on my back in the pouring rain in front of a restaurant that I just had dinner with, with Polly Bergen, the great, great actress. Who I just, we had had dinner at that restaurant the night before. So the waiter came out and he goes, Mr. Tobolowski, are you all right? I said, yeah, I'm just, I'm just a little winded. Um, I think I'm going to be okay. Uh, he goes, all right. <laughs> and he goes back in the restaurant. He's a Canadian. What can you do? So I'm lying in the rain on my back. People are walking around me, walking over me. I don't know what they thought. After about 20 minutes in the pouring rain, I pull myself up on my hands and knees and start crawling the remaining two blocks to the hotel or so. And I'm crawling on my hands and knees and people are just very polite. Canadians are very polite, but they didn't want to interrupt. They thought maybe I was having a private moment. And I got back to the hotel and I called the production office and I said, I don't know what happened, but I think I may have just had a heart attack. I don't know what a heart attack feels like, but I think that's what happened. Cause that was, that was serious, man. So they made arrangements for me to go to a Canadian cardiologist. And, you know, they have that massive healthcare system up there with their 33 million people. So I walk into the hospital and there's this doctor sitting at a card table with a folding chair. Now, nothing inspires you more than seeing somebody sitting. I mean, I thought we were going to play cards or something. He's sitting at a fold up card table and a little folding chair and his white coat is on the ground. Oh, how are you? Yes. Uh, you, you think you may have had a heart attack. Well, let's have a look at that, shall we? And, and the great thing about the Canadian healthcare system is this guy gave me a test or two. He says, well, I'm not sure if you had a heart attack, but may, what did you have at the ball game? Oh, a hot dog and popcorn? Well, maybe you just had too much salt. And you had a bit of arrhythmia, nothing to worry about. <laughs> so... Uh, I did have, that was Dr. Jekyll, Miss Hyde. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, that I'm thinking that was around 95 or nine. Do, do you have the year? Is that 95 or 96? I can look that up real quick. Dr. Jekyll, Miss Hyde. Mid nineties, I think. Let me check real quick. Give me one second. 1995. Yeah. 19, hey. That's pretty good memory, huh? 95. So I ended up having a triple bypass in 2011. Wow. So I think I think it could have been the precursor of something. Mm -hmm. And uh, but again, that's a little off topic. Working working with Sean and everybody was delightful, and Tim. It, it was all we actors had a good time, and we. We knew it was kind of one of these sex romps. We knew it was never going to be a great movie, mm -hmm. but we hoped it would be a fun movie.
Yes. And you just remind me, you know, like just the whole heart attack story. I remember when my grandmother um, had a heart attack. She was at our house. Everything was going normal. All of a sudden, she wasn't feeling good. She laid down on our couch. And she just told my mom, I'm just going to drive myself to like emergency care or something just to get checked out. My mom took one look at her and went, yeah, we're going to the hospital. Let's go. <laughs> they took the EKG or they took like the photo. Her main artery was the size of like a needle. Yeah. Like they said, they call that the widow maker. They said, if you were to go home that night and just lay down or something or fall down, you wouldn't wake up. You wouldn't be here right now. So. Yeah. yeah, with me in 2011, I did a stress test. You know, I was feeling, I was fine and everything. And my doctor said, who is also a cardiologist, he said, you know, your EKG is kind of saying that you may have a blockage, like 14% blockage or whatever. And I'm thinking like, is that serious? He says, well, you know, you, you should, you know, we could give you medication or something. Or oh, he says, we could do an angiogram. and now, now I'm getting scared. I said an angiogram, and that's where they stick a uh, some a sensor up in the artery of your thigh, up inside your heart, and you, he says that's the most accurate measure, so we could see what's really happening with your heart. And I'm going like, and I'd look it up, and like something like one in a thousand people die from the test. You know, and I'm going like, oh, you know, I don't want to be the one in a thousand. You, you know, do I have to have this? And he says, well, no, you don't have to have it. So that was January 2nd. He, he says, you don't have to have it. And I said, okay, let's do the angiogram. So uh, the 4th of January, I'm on an operating table. And they said, we're going to give you a little something to kind of mildly sedate you. And apparently hospitals have a different definition of mildly than I do in the real world. I mean, I was seeing colors, witches from Macbeth were like flying through the air. And, and the doctor leaned over at me and goes, excuse me, this goes to my Bing guy who asked the Bing, are you Stephen Tobolowsky? And I go, yes, sir. Are you the guy who writes the stories? And I go, yeah. So are you going to write a story about me? And I go, well, that depends, doesn't it, Doc? Look, I really enjoy jawboning with you right now, but can we just, you know, get, right now, so. can we get this show on the road? He goes, oh, we finished. We finished over an hour ago. Now, now we're just cleaning up. In fact, your wife is here now with your doctor. I'm going like, huh? What, what happened? He goes, you have to go into emergency surgery, uh, triple bypass. Your main artery is 97% blocked. Your next main artery is 75% blocked. And the third artery is 70% blocked. You may not live through the night. So we have to do a triple bypass right away. And uh, so they wheel me into the waiting, the area where my wife is. It's a dark room. <laughs> they keep everything dark in there for some reason. And Annie is crying. And my doctor, Jeff, is trying to smile. And that's such a bad combination. The visual side by side, the wife in tears, the doctor like, 
and it goes, so Stephen, who would you want to do this surgery? And I think I said, I'm going to cut out the expletives. I said, how the, you know, how the, do I know who does the surgery? I don't know surgeons. That's your job. If you had to have this, I said, if you want me to do a, if you were doing a comedy, you would come to me and say, Stephen, who should I cast in my sitcom? I would tell you. But Jeff, now you have to tell me who's going to operate on me. Who would you want operating on you? And so we got Dr. Robert Cass and he goes, well, we're going to give you a series of tests starting now. And then tomorrow, I want you to say goodbye to whoever you need to say goodbye to. I want you to cross your T's and dot your I's, uh, finish all unfinished business, and then I will see you dawn of the next day. And I go, that's the pep talk? I get home and I'm covered with magic marker from where they're going to, quote, harvest arteries from other parts of my body to go into my heart. And I look at this ink all over my body and I just start crying. I just start crying and fall on the floor. And it's like, it's hopeless. And then I'm lying through the night. Then Annie is crying next to me the whole night. And then the next day I have to finish my unfinished business. So I open up my book that I've been working on. Nope. Can't do it. Uh, stories. Nope, 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 nope. And then it took me a lifetime to get to this point to realize I had no unfinished business. I never did. So I called up my father and I told him I loved him. I called up my brother. He told me I had been a very good brother and it was a pleasure to know me and he wishes me well. I called up my sister, sat at the dinner table that night and told my children the next day I'm going into surgery. It's serious. And I want you guys to know that I love you. And William, uh, my youngest, says, oh, Dad, stop being such a drama queen. <laughs> stop being such a drama queen. So the next day, I, I get the call. Oh, this is another. I get the call that night from the woman at the hospital. And she said, okay, per our instructions, when you come tomorrow at dawn, you bring nothing. No wallet, no ID, no glasses, no keys, no wedding ring, no suitcase, no clothes, nothing. But you come with another person that has all of that material for you. So Annie and I show up at dawn the next day with about 12 other couples that are also, one of them's having the surgery. So we're, we go, and they're going to operate in order. So I was sitting in the waiting room of the heart surgery wing at Cedar sinai Everybody's paired off with their person. And the person who's getting surgery, you could always see them because we're calm. We have nothing. No glasses, no wedding ring, no anything. We just are sitting like lumps in these chairs, kind of looking out a window or imagining something totally calm. And then the person next to them is going out of their mind. They're in tears. They're gasping for air. They have reams of papers and identification and 
wedding marriage licenses and birth certificates and all the and was like going nuts and and you see the other people one calm one nuts and then we go in in a line with the other person and we're all going through the double doors because they're going to do pre-op to all 12 people then put all 12 people in different operating rooms and the surgeons go around in a circle and they do one part of the procedure, then another part. So I was in surgery to two o'clock in the afternoon from six in the morning to two o'clock. And I remember when I could speak, which was later that I was in so much pain because they break all your ribs and crack your rib cage up. They break all your ribs. I was in all this pain and I'm trying to, gesture for Anne. You can't even move your arm because it hurts. Everything hurts so much. And I'm trying to gesture and she comes down and I go, you won't believe this, but I feel so good. <laughs> and she looks at me and I had not felt so good in so long. And it's my heart had blood. And I was, I did not know if I was a lobster in the damn pot and the temperature had been going up. And now I had these three new arteries pumping blood and I felt magnificent. And how do you feel today? Terrible. (laughs) (laughs) No, I feel great. In fact, I went to the doctor during the damn pandemic and he wanted to do another echocardiogram to see how my heart is healing. And he said, it's amazing. You know, whenever they, Robert Cass, when he did that surgery on you, you didn't tell me this, but you must have bought the extended warranty. He says, your heart is perfect. Your your heart is completely recovered. There's the blood, the arteries are perfect. The, the valves are perfect. He says, your cholesterol numbers have dropped. What, what is your secret? And I said, well, in the pandemic, all I'm doing is eating sweet rolls and drinking gin. That's all I'm doing. And, and it's like, that's it, man. I'm drinking, I'm drinking dark gin from Finland. I, I, I drink a, 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 a bit every day. And my wife makes me homemade cinnamon rolls. And I'm, I'm, I'm losing weight and I'm feeling great. So I'm going to write a diet book when this is all over. First off, to my girlfriend slash fiance who's listening to this podcast right now, you know the drill, honey. You know what <laughs> you know the experience. And number two, I'm taking that advice to my parents. My parents love a good gin and tonic at night, you know? Just a good Yeah, maybe, well, I'm yeah. and I'm and I'm saying with the dark gin from Finland, you don't need the damn tonic. Wow. I, I'm saying I am saying, I am saying straight gin. Ice cold, dark gin from Finland. It's like moonshine, and it it you 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 have to make sure that you don't overindulge. But I gotta say, you feel like a you you feel so fit and healthy when you're done. You could yeah yeah you got to babe. You could reach you could reach for that TV changer with such ease and put on guys' grocery games and go like now, <laughs> let the games begin. You know, it's, yeah. So yeah, that, that's. You don't even need a line for it or anything like that? Or. No. Like, no? The, wow. The dark gin. 
we all know what gin is for gin and tonic, but the dark gin is this very, very dark amber, and it has all of these botanical flavors in it. So it 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 tastes like feel grass. Feel, oh yeah, gin and cinnamon rolls, the elixir of life. There you go. You you you, the dark gin has such a rich flavor to it a botanical kind of flavor to it, kind of medicinal flavor to it. You don't want to mess it up with, with the tonic, which I love. I love a gin, but this is different. This is a different hit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I could have talked to you all day. I'm going to wrap it up with three questions. Yeah, you so. got it. Yep. The first one is in your own words, what does it mean to be someone's buddy? I, the first thing that comes to mind is that you'll listen and you try the first thing you'll listen, you try not to judge. And you you try you try to steer them down a way of the greatest truth and the least pain. Love it. Absolutely love it. Part of being a buddy is also being a charitable buddy. So if you could have our audience donate to one charity of your choice, what would it be and why? Wow. Well, it would be different in different times. Right now, the first thing that comes to mind are the damn food banks. Because there are people that are in such enormous need now that have never been in need before because of this pandemic. Uh, my wife and I, my son, we, we've worked at various food banks and we usually do it uh, on holidays where people are serving Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner, things like that. But now, like people who who aren't financially challenged are financially challenged. And I would say, give money to the food banks. Beautiful. Beautiful. Now this is what we call the ultimate buddy cash. Oh, here we go. You ready for it? It's a doozy. I'm ready. Bing. What is your advice for anybody who wants to become an actor? The great thing Boy, that buddy question too. So I have to be, I have to be supportive. <laughs> uh, in the uh, Enlightenment, they had a very simple formula for the way human beings behave. This is we're talking Voltaire, Rousseau, in, in that period of time, in that man moves toward pleasure and away from pain, and that all political systems, all uh, professions operate under the same thing. Acting is no different. There are many pleasures and there is much pain. And depending upon your level of pain is how far you're able to go in in your level of humiliation. The first thing an actor should do is the simplest entry level is read plays and watch classic films. So you see great Frank Capra films. You know, I'm talking... You know, the great classic films of the 30s and 40s and 50s, uh, Ilya Kazan. Watch these films and see how the storytelling is done and how the acting styles vary. And read plays uh, from Shakespeare to post-Shakespeare to Oscar Wilde to the plays that I loved, Chekhov, Ibsen. This is an easy entree point because you could imagine yourself in these roles. The wonderful thing about being an actor or a musician or a 
a painter or sculptor, any of any of those arts, anything you do will assist in your work. Uh, you can watch the Weather Channel. You you could study quantum physics. Uh, you can read classic literature of the 18th or 19th century. Anything you you could study safe cracking. Anything you do will help you in the role. Will help you think. This is why, in a way, a lot of sports people are very good actors because to be an athlete, you have to take three steps, turn right, get ready for the ball. You know, you have to make the professional catch. You have to, or am I doing a three-step drop back as a quarterback or a seven-step drop back? You know, it's precise. Uh, acting is not throwing emotions at the wall like pasta to see what sticks. Acting is about clarity of thought. If you can read a script and allow your mind to work, not your heart, we're all emotional 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Don't worry about what emotion to play. Worry about what is the situation. That's why I read the script for Michael Mann. If you know the situation you're in, your body will automatically take over if you trust. The final thing I'll say about being an actor. I had a great, 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 great acting teacher who said actors only have one problem, and that is trust. Now, the object of lack of trust could be ourselves, could be a director, could be not trusting the writer. But that is where pain enters into this profession, and that is through lack of trust. And the only way you can counter a lack of trust is with knowledge and courage. And that increases your pleasure, and you will continue on as an actor. Love it. Great advice. And now I have one more question, just this one real quick, which is, what is Ned Ryerson's advice to the world today? That even if you have insurance, you could probably use a little more. Am I right or am I right? Am I right? Right, right, right. Love it. Perfect way to end the show. Thank you so much for stopping by and being a buddy here on BuddyCast. You're an official buddy on what we, we call them. We don't call them guests. We call them buddies. Well, I appreciate being a buddy, Nick. I appreciate it very much. Yes. For all my buddies out there, this is my new buddy, Stephen Tobolowski. You know him as Ned Ryerson. Catch him in the Goldbergs. And again, thank you for being a buddy. I got one favor to ask you. Yep. Go be someone's buddy today. Well, I'm about to right now because I'm a grandfather, and right now I'm going to be a buddy to my little granddaughter. Perfect. Go Love take her for a walk right now. Love it. All righty. For all my buddies out there, we'll catch you next time here on BuddyCast. Adios. Well, the days are going fast. Buddy, buddy, we've got to make them last. Buddy, buddy, before they've all gone past. Everybody tune in to Buddy Cats. Don't feel like it could make everybody here on Buddy Cats.